Friends and enemies, welcome back to Panastoria. We're here, and today we are talking about the Titanic. And yeah, we realized that we released our drug episode on the anniversary that the Titanic sank. <laughs> yeah, we may have may have fucked this one up, but oh well. Well, the funny thing is, is and I already, we operate on our own schedule. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, and I already told you about this, is that I knew that was the day. It just never crossed my mind that maybe we should. <laughs> Rethink what we were doing. It wasn't until I'd finished <laughs> editing and uploaded it that I realized, oh, yeah, maybe Oops. we kind of, hopefully this isn't a sinking ship metaphor, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's not uh, foreshadowing our podcast <laughs> fortunes. <laughs> no, no, no. Hopefully not. But anyway, hello. <laughs> this lovely uh, day in April. It is a nice day. So, I imagine a much nicer day than the one that... Titanic was <laughs> part felt, of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for one, we're not on the Atlantic seas off the coast of Newfoundland. Real far from it, in fact. Very, yeah. And pretty landlocked. So oh, pretty landlocked. Sinking is not really a thing that we're going to do anytime soon, I guess. <laughs> no, definitely not. But here we are. So yeah, we're going to be talking about the unsinkable ti- Titanic, and as you'll find out, it did not live up to its name, as yeah. you probably already know. The unsinkable and Titan was actually pretty sinkable. Pretty much. And you also will find out that it wasn't just a stupid James Cameron movie. Yeah. I hate this movie, so forgive me. There's there's a place for it in film history. In, not in a real good, history. Not a good place. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> not a good place. <laughs> uh, to be fair, James Cameron made a couple really fantastic documentaries about the Titanic that were actually a lot better than the movie itself. Fantastic documentaries and a shitty movie. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> We're going to be moving on now. No Trash don't on the comments. <laughs> I'm just I, I'll take it. Come at me, kidding. bro. I don't um, actually love the movie either. I don't like Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> okay. Anyway. <laughs> Trash me in the comments for that. <laughs> Enough. Uh, I, guess, I, I think we've gotten our venting out of the way. So we're going to get right into it as usual. The history of like shipping uh, people across the Atlantic has been uh, sort of fraught. The, the two companies that were mostly involved in the Titanic story didn't get involved in shipping really until like partway through the, the 1800s. And I'll talk about their, their company histories a little bit more specifically at the end because they do tie seamlessly into today, actually. But for now, I'm just going to talk a little bit about just general like shipping. <laughs> so really, for the most part, people have been shipping cargo across the Atlantic Ocean from England to the United States. So for the most part, the ships were basically all carrying mail to the colonies, uh, especially was a big business, but mostly cargo, so animals, uh, building materials, goods for import and export, etc. The first passenger line that was actually operated purposely to carry passengers came around in uh, 1818, and it was called the Black Ball Line. And it operated a group of packet ships, which are a medium-sized boat, which are basically designed to carry mail. (laughs) And they became, they took these ships and just converted them into being able to carry passengers. So the first scheduled transatlantic service was founded in 1817, but the dates are a little weird. But give or take, between 1817 and 18 is when it was established and the first operation took place. It operated for something like 60 years, actually. So it was one of the first like dedicated passenger line and it was the most successful until bigger lines emerged and took over. 
But the interesting part about Black Ball was that, like, if you wanted, if you were a passenger and you wanted to get from London to New York prior to the existence of, say, Black Ball, it was really inconsistent and you weren't really sure when you were going to get to leave um, because ships basically left when all of their cargo was loaded and they arrived when they arrived. Shit happens, I guess, at sea. And they didn't care too much about speed. I mean, they cared within reason, but it wasn't like they were, you know, trying to improve, impress anybody. So if you were a passenger and you wanted to get across the ocean, you essentially had to sort of take what you get. There was a good chance you had to ride with the cargo. <laughs> there wasn't really any dedicated amenities for passengers. And uh, as Jonah and I joked about before we started recording, you may have had to tend for animals <laughs> or do work on the ship. <laughs> There's no guarantee you didn't. So... It was expensive, it was uh, inconsistent, it was pretty crappy um, to be on the boats, so it wasn't really ideal. So there was, the Black Ball Line saw an opportunity, basically. They realized that if they got passengers across the Atlantic quickly, people would be impressed. So they started converting their mail packet ships into passenger ships and increased the number of passengers that they could carry. They still carried cargo. And they would also carry cargo for the passengers. So they would carry, they, there was always talk about the ship's cow so people could have fresh milk on the, on the ride over. And they had livestock on, on board that they would use for food and whatnot. Just, I mean, as people have always done, I guess, when sailing. But it then also created pass, er, competition. So other lines started to pop up and challenge Black Ball. But Black Ball was the most successful because they were the fastest. They could get a crossing really, really quickly. And actually, one of the things that they did as an incentive to do this is that ship captains were paid based on how fast they got across the ocean, essentially. And so there was like a huge incentive for captains to make these trips like short. And it worked because it meant that they were, they left on time, they left on time, they got across on time. And these ship captains started to get some notoriety and, and whatnot as well as a result. So it was kind of a weird system. And when you think about it now, it's like, can you imagine operating airlines like that? It would be kind of scary from a safety perspective. But in 1818, they didn't care very much <laughs> about that. So it was really, really positive. So shipping, passenger shipping really started to evolve throughout the 1800s and kind of started really peaking at the beginning of the 1900s when companies like White Star Lines, which owned Titanic, and Cunard Lines, which is now Carnival Lines, started getting going as well. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't have too much on there. There's not, a, like, a ton of information still, but I just want to shout out uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class, which is a podcast that I discovered all of this on uh, the other day, actually, when we were doing... I was just listening to podcasts and found this episode, and it was relevant to what we were doing, so it was really interesting. Definitely check it out. There's is a lot less... Uh, their explanations are a lot better than mine was, <laughs> but yeah, so that's where we're at with that. But yeah, White Star Lines eventually starts and begins work on their biggest ship yet, the Titanic. That is true. So the name derives from the Titan of Greek mythology. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Some people you'd think, but... <laughs> yeah, you would think, but some people might not know this, but it was part of a class of ocean liners and it wasn't the flagship of the ocean liners it was part of what it's called the olympic class ocean liner of the white star line and it was the second to be built the first being rms olympic and the third being rms britannic but we shall get to those in a bit they have interesting stories of <laughs> they, their own they do construction placed in the hands of belfast shipbuilders harland and wolf also known as h&w 
Continuing their long-standing partnership, first established in 1867, White Line granted H&W a generous amount of latitude in terms of the design and construction of the White Line fleets. The Olympic-class fleet, no exception. The total cost of the fleet at that time was three million pounds, and today adjusted for inflation, is that would be 342 million pounds. That's some cash. Yeah. That's a lot of queens. <laughs> I guess maybe kings if he was on the money at the time. He was. Yeah. Design overseen by H&W and White Line director Lord Peary, naval architect Thomas Andrews and his deputy Edward Wildling, and the shipyard's chief draughtsman and general director Alexander Carlyle. It was Carlyle's responsibility of decorations, equipment, and all general arrangements, including the implementation of of an efficient lifeboat davit design. That becomes important. So the first drawings were presented to White Line executives on July 28, 1908, which were approved and authorized for construction. Titanic in total was 269.06 meters long and had a maximum breadth of 28.19 meters. It stood 32 meters high from the keel to the top of the bridge had a volume of 46,328 gross register tons and had a draught of 10.54 meters, weighed a total of 52,310 tons. It's a heavy bitch. Oh, yeah. As with all Olympic-class vessels, Titanic had 10 decks, eight of which were for passengers. Equipped with three main engines, two recuperating four-cylinder triple-extension steam engines, with an output of 30,000 HP, one centrally placed low-pressure Parsons turbine with 16,000 HP. It had 16 primary compartments divided by 16 bulkheads extending above the waterline, 11 vertically closing water- watertight doors to seal off compartments in an emergency. Exposed deck made of pine and teak with ex- interior ceilings covered in painted cork to prevent buildup of condensation. A 23.98 meter high and 4.65 meter long rudder, weighing 100 tons and requiring steering engines to move. Equipped with waterworks made to heat and pump water to all areas of the ship through pipes and valves. Held a large water supply, but was capable of distilling fresh water from seawater in an emergency. However, issues with the distillation plant became clogged with salt deposits. Makes sense. Yeah. Radio telegraph equipment leased by Marconi International Marine Communication Company, as well as employees Jack Phillips and Harold Bride. So they did not work for White Line or the Titanic specifically. Actually, they a lot of the, the Titanic telegram. staff didn't. Probably not. Fitted with 20 lifeboats, 14 wooden H&W lifeboats, each with a capacity of 65 people, four Engelhart collapsible lifeboats with a capacity of 47 each, wooden bottom collapsible canvas sides, and two emergency cutters with a capacity of 40 each. This was actually more than what a ship was legally required to carry at that time. Lifeboats were meant to transport passengers from a sinking ship to a rescue vessel, not maintain people for long periods of time. 
Which becomes important. Very important. Also, the math will become important when I <laughs> want to talk about the number of passengers that the Titanic had and could have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Olympic and Titanic were meant to be the same size, but last-minute changes in construction made Titanic bigger. A steel screen with sliding windows was installed on Tita- Titanic's A-deck promenade in order to provide supplementary shelter for first-class passengers. However, the difference between both ship sizes was small and not even noticeable. Both ships were virtually identical, and even photographs today either mislabel Olympic as Titanic and vice versa. When I was in Belfast, I actually toured the area where Titanic was built. I saw the dry docks where all the Olympic-class ships were built. And it's funny because when you go around Belfast, you'll see photos, and you're like, oh, look, it's a Titanic, but it labels it the Olympic. You go to a different place with the same photo, and it says it's the Titanic. And it's like, okay, which one is it? And then I found apparently the best way to look at it is that there's actually, in photographs like that, there's absolutely no way to tell the difference. And so if you look at them side by side, I'll post some photos on the Facebook page. If you look at them side by side, they are identical. Also, another thing, if you, if you, any of you guys go to Belfast, I think this is important to point out especially talking about this, there are those big yellow cranes that are H&W, and they're named uh, are Samson and Goliath. If anyone tells you they built the, they helped build the Titanic, they are full of shit. <laughs> they did not help build the Titanic, as I found out while I was there, even though I was told differently. They were built in the 60s. Oh. So they could not have built the Titanic. They yeah. built a bunch of other ships. Yeah. But not the Titanic. Not the Titanic. Also, there's a good chance if there's a if there is a ship that was that's from the UK, especially during a certain period of time, there's about a ninety percent chance it was built in Belfast. It's a big shipbuilding town. Construction of Titanic became delayed after the Olympic was struck by the HMS Hawk. She returned to Belfast and was repaired with parts from the Titanic. This isn't the first time that actually happened, either. You'll find as you'll find out in just a second. An important figure to know about is a man named Edward John Smith of Hanley, Staffordshire. He's a veteran White Star Line captain, and he began as a fourth officer on the SS Celtic in March 1880 on voyages to Australia and New York City. He was given command of SS Republic in 1887, earned his extra master's certificate in 1888, and joined the Royal Navy Reserve the same year, receiving the rank of lieutenant. Captain of Majestic for nine years, serving in the Boer War in 1899, transporting troops to Cape Colony. He was awarded the Transport Medal by Edward VII in 1903, and he retired from the R&R in 1905 as a commander. He was originally given command of the Olympic on her maiden voyage, which went without incident and arrived in New York on June 21, 1911. However, Olympic collided with one of the port's tugboats, which was caught in Olympic's backwash and became momentarily trapped between the stern. It managed to get itself free, though. Crisis averted. Oh, yeah. There's a few of these in White Star's history. I've got a number of these types of incidents to talk about. <laughs> oh, how history has not changed. Anyway. So uh, comforting. <laughs> on September 20th, 1911, Olympic became struck by the HMS Hawk, causing the latter to lose her prow. Both of Olympic's compartments filled with water and one of the propeller shafts became twisted. Olympic returned to Belfast where she was fitted with parts from the Titanic to repair, as I mentioned earlier, effectively delaying the latter's voyage. 
Furthermore, on Olympic's first voyage back in February 1912, she lost a propeller and had to once again return for repairs. Once again, Titanic's maiden voyage had to be delayed from March 20th to April 10th. Lastly, Smith was given command of the Titanic shortly before her maiden voyage. According to Whiteline, he would remain in command of the ship, quote, until the company completed a larger and finer steamer, end quote. So, to, needless to say, Smith was a very, very, very highly regarded captain, especially to Whiteline, because he was, he's been he so their, successful. Yeah, he was their most experienced as well. Yeah, I'd say he was, I don't want to say he's their mascot, but he was... He was their most famous. He was their celebrity captain. And ship captains at this time were definitely celebrities. Like, uh, what helped make them celebrities was just, like, previously with things like blackball, with paying captains captains and having incentives for doing things fast. They become, they become like, famous. And so at one point, you could book your voyage and, like, choose which captain you wanted to run with on blackball. So if you knew, like, Captain X could get you, he was, like, really good, you'd purposely book with them. So, like, ship captains had so much celebrity that you could, like, you chose which ship to go on based on who was the captain, which is kind of wild to me <laughs> since we're like every pilot that we've ever had when they're, and I've flown a lot, like every pilot ever is like, I don't remember any of their names. Like they always tell you over the intercom, but like, I don't remember your name. Well, now that it's become so routine. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's like kind of crazy that, you know, ship captains are just like these massive celebrities. <laughs> Whereas like airline pilots now it's like, unless you like do something incredible, <laughs> You're pretty anonymous. Pretty much. It's like in uh, Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. 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 Women throwing themselves at the guy. Anyway. Uh. <laughs> so both Olympic and Titanic were registered in Liverpool as their home port. So the offices of White Star and Cunard, Cunard, sorry, Cunard Lines, which was their chief rival. <laughs> so yeah, the two main shipping companies out of Britain, I guess. Uh, that I'll, I'll mention this quickly. The two main shipping companies were White Star Lines, which owns Titanic and Olympic, and Cunard Lines, which owned the Lusitania and uh, Marencia, which were those their two main vessels. Um, anyway, so actually Cunard also owns the ship that rescued Titanic. So both Olympic and Titanic were registered in Liverpool. Um, the offices of both White Star and Cunard were in Liverpool. And up until the introduction of, of the Olympic, most British ocean liners for both Cunard and White Star, such as Lusitania, sailed out of Liverpool, followed by a port of call in Queenstown, Ireland. However, in 1907, White Star established another service out of Southampton, on England's south coast, which became known as White Star's Express Service. Southampton had many advantages over Liverpool, the first being its proximity to London. Southampton also allowed ships to easily cross the English Channel and make a port of call in France, and the Southampton-Cherbourg-New York run would become extremely popular. Titanic's maiden voyage was intended to be the first of many transatlantic crossings between Southampton and New York via Cherbourg and Queenstown on westbound runs, returning via Plymouth and England while eastbound. Her entire schedule through to December 1912 actually still exists. So when the route was established, four ships were assigned to the service. Teutonic, Majestic, Oceanic, and Adriatic. When Olympic entered service in June 1911, she replaced Teutonic, which was then transferred to the Dominion Lines Canadian service. The following August, Adriatic was transferred to White Star's main Liverpool-New York service. And in November, Majestic was withdrawn from service and mothballed, pending the arrival of Titanic. What does that mean when you're mothballed? Basically, you're just, like, put in port and... Oh, okay, you just kind of left there? Yeah, yeah, you're done. Mothballed basically means retired, and they start to cannibalize parts, typically, from them. Uh. 
Their initial plans for Olympic and Titanic on the Southampton run followed the same routine as their predecessors. Each would sail once every three weeks from Southampton to New York, usually leaving at noon each Wednesday from Southampton and each Saturday from New York, thus enabling White Star to offer weekly sailings in each direction. Special trains were scheduled from London and Paris to convey passengers to Southampton, Southampton and Cherbourg, respectively. So this is also why Southampton was such a good location, was that it was so much closer to London that they could have just dedicated train lines, basically. The Deepwater Dock at Southampton, then known as the White Star Dock, had been built specifically to accommodate the new Olympic-class liners and had opened in 1911. I thought I wrote the date wrong for a second. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? Um, Story so- of our life. Right? Titanic had around 885 crew on board for her maiden voyage. Like other vessels of the time, she did not have a permanent crew, and the vast majority of her crew members were casual workers who only came aboard the ship a few hours before she sailed from Southampton. The protest, or sorry, the process, not the protest, the process of signing up recruits had begun on March 23rd, and some had been sent to Belfast, where they served as a skeleton crew during Titanic's sea trials and passage to England at the start of April. Like Jonah mentioned, Captain Edward John Smith was transferred from Olympic to take command of the Titanic. Henry Tingle Wild also came from Olympic to take the post of chief mate. Previously designated chief mate and first officer William McMaster Murdoch and Charles Lightoller were bumped down to first and second officer, respectively. Original second officer David Blair was dropped altogether, and third officer Herbert Pittman was the only deck officer who was not a member of the Royal Naval Reserve. Fun fact. He was also one of the last crew members of this group to die he was like second to last spoilers spoiler alert i mean if you didn't already know then (laughs) i can't help you (laughs) (laughs) if you didn't already know what happens to titanic i can't help you um that's kind of the weird part about like talking about things like this is it's like i can't even really give you super good spoilers because it's really famous (laughs) like like (laughs) anyway um titanic's crew were divided into three principal departments the deck crew which had about 66 crew the engine crew, which is about 325 in numbers, and the vitaling crew, which was 494. The vast majority of the crew were not seamen, but were engineers, firemen, or stokers responsible for looking after the engines, or stewards and galley staff responsible for the passengers. Over 90% of the vitaling staff, which were mostly the passenger tending staff, over 90% of those crew members were actually male, which um, is kind of surprising in a way, but just 23 of the crew were female, mainly stewardesses. Pretty much everybody else represented a great variety of professions from bakers, chefs, butchers, fishmongers, dishwashers, stewards, gymnasium instructors, laundrymen, waiters, bedmakers, cleaners, and even a printer who produced a daily newspaper for passengers called the Atlantic Daily Bulletin with the latest news received by the ship's wireless operators. So you could even get, like, basically the Titanic Daily News. How cool is that? (laughs) Most of this crew signed on in Southampton on April 6th. Um, it all 699 of the crew came from there, and 40% were natives of the town. A few specialist staff were self-employed or subcontractors. These included five postal clerks who worked for the Royal Mail Service and the U.S. Postal Service, the staff of the first-class a la carte restaurant and the Café Parisian, Parisian sorry, uh, the radio operators, and the eight musicians who were hired by an agency and traveled as second-class passengers, famously who play while the ship sinks in the movie <laughs> that you hate. <laughs> Anyways, uh, staff wages varied really greatly. They were as high as 105 pounds or about 10,200 pounds today for the captain per month. 
or three pounds, which is about 340 pounds today, that the stewardess has earned. The difference is pretty severe. 10,000 a month for the captain and 340 a month for the, like in today's money, for the, uh, for the stewardesses. Um, there were approximately 1,317 passengers on board Titanic. 324 in first class, 284 in second, and 709 in third class. Of these, 66% or of these, sorry, 66% were male and 34% female. There were around 107 children on board, the, la- the largest number of whom were in third class. The ship was considerably under capacity on her maiden voyage. So remember the lifeboat math, because this is where it gets really interesting. <laughs> there was 20 lifeboats, and Titanic's actual capacity that they could it could accommodate was 2,453 passengers, so it was not nearly at capacity for this voyage. So it could actually accommodate, yeah, 2,453 passengers, uh, which is broken down into 833 first class, 614 second class, and 1,006 third class. Um, Usually a high-prestige vessel like Titanic could expect to be fully booked, But a national coal strike actually stopped this from happening. So what happened was there was a coal strike in the UK and it disrupted shipping schedules in the spring of 1912 because ships couldn't get enough coal to sail. So causing that cost a lot or caused a lot of crossings to be canceled and it actually benefited Titanic in a way. Many would-be passengers chose to postpone their travel plans until the strike was over because they were just sick of booking and having it canceled. The strike finished a few days before Titanic sailed, but it ended too late like too close to Titanic sailing to make a difference in terms of its passenger numbers, it still impacted it. And the only reason Titanic was actually able to sail on the scheduled date was because coal was transferred from other vessels which were tied up in Southampton, such as the SS City of New York and the RMS Oceanic, as well as coal Olympic had brought back from a previous voyage to New York. So, like, this was still pretty, still ends up being catastrophic and there weren't even as many passengers as Titanic could have had. So I thought that was actually really interesting, just that it was, like, not even remotely full has like maybe 50 percent capacity for this voyage many notable people traveled on titanic's maiden voyage including industrialist benjamin guggenheim who famously died on the ship he dressed in his best tuxedo and smoked a cigar on the deck in a deck chair while it sank because he knew he wasn't going to be rescued (laughs) titanic's owner jp morgan was scheduled to travel on the maiden voyage as well but canceled at the last minute also aboard the ship were the White Star Lines managing director, J. Bruce Ismay, and Titanic's designer, Thomas Andrews, who was on board to observe any problems and assess the general performance of the ship. Spoiler, not good. <laughs> the exact number of people aboard is not entirely known, as not all of those who had booked tickets made it to the ship. About 50 people canceled for various reasons, and not all of those who boarded stayed aboard for the entire journey. Fares varied depending on the class and the season. So third-class fares from London, Southampton, or Queenstown cost seven and a half pounds, which is about 700 pounds today, while the cheapest first-class first class fare costs 23 pounds, which is about 2,200 pounds today. The most expensive first-class suites were to have cost up to 870 pounds which in high season, which is equivalent to about 85,000 pounds today, which is like over $160,000 Canadian or something crazy. I didn't do the actual math, but it's a lot. <laughs> Titanic's maiden voyage began on Wednesday, April 10th, 1912. Following the embarkation of the crew, passengers began arriving at 9.30 when the London and Southwestern Railway's boat train from London Waterloo reached Southampton. The large number of third-class passengers meant that they were aboard first, with first and second class following up an hour before departure. 
Stewards then showed those passengers to their cabins, and first-class passengers were personally greeted by Captain Smith as they boarded the ship. Third-class passengers were inspected for ailments and physical impairments that might lead to their being refused entry to the U.S., which is something that White Star really wanted to avoid, because anybody who wasn't let into the U.S., White Star had to carry back across the Atlantic for free. (laughs) (laughs) So, in all, 920 passengers boarded at Southampton. 179 first class, 247 second class, and 494 third class. Additional passengers were to be picked up at Cherbourg and Queenstown. The voyage began at 12 noon, as scheduled. An accident was narrowly averted only a few minutes later, as Titanic's leaving. As it passed the moored liners, um, the SS City of New York, of the American Line and the Oceanic of White Star, the latter would have been her running mate on the service from Southampton, actually, had... Titanic, not. Bad things had not happened. Um, (laughs) So anyways, as Titanic passed the moored liners, it caused a huge displacement of water, and it caused both of the smaller ships to be lifted by a bulge of water and then drop into a trough. (laughs) So New York's mooring cables snapped because they weren't weren't capable of dealing with that kind of, like, velocity, that kind of uh, tension. So the mooring cables snapped, swinging her stern first towards Titanic. A nearby tugboat, the Vulcan came to the rescue and pulled New York away while Captain Smith ordered Titanic's engines to be put full astern. The two ships avoided collision by a matter of about four feet. Oh my god. Which, for context, that's like a foot and a bit shorter than I am and I'm not that tall. (laughs) Like, it's, it's, uh, yeah, pretty close. Uh, The incident delayed Titanic's departure for about an hour while New York was corralled, but they managed to get her controlled and tied back up. Titanic then headed for the English Channel and for the French port of Cherbourg, a journey of 77 nautical miles. Because Cherbourg did not have facilities for a ship as large as Titanic, actually most ports didn't, pretty much Southampton, I mean, the whole dry dock at Southampton was built literally just for Titanic, or the, that class of liners, and like New York, but a lot of these ports didn't have facilities that could handle the size of these ships. So because it did not, passengers were transferred by tender ships from shore to ship. So Titanic was met by tenders four hours after she had departed Southampton, and and an additional 274 passengers were taken aboard at Cherbourg. 24 passengers left the ship on tenders, having only paid for a cross-channel passage. At 8 p.m., Titanic weighed anchor and headed for Ireland, with the weather continuing cold and windy. At 11.30 a.m. on Thursday, April 11th, Titanic arrived at Cork Harbour on the south coast of Ireland and was again met by tenders to bring passengers to Titanic. 123 more passengers joined the ship at Queenstown. Another seven passengers disembarked at Queenstown, having paid only for the overnight journey from Southampton to Ireland. This included Father Francis Brown, a Jesuit trainee and photographer who took many photos aboard Titanic, including the last ever-known photograph of the ship. Titanic weighed anchor for the last time at 11.30 a.m. and departed westward across the Atlantic. Craig, you're about to find out if they make it. Sorry, guys. On April 14th, 2nd Officer Charles Lightroller relieved Chief Officer Henry Tingle Wilde. I had to include the middle name. So good. On watch on the bridge at 6 p.m., Wilde commented how the temperatures felt colder than usual, and he believed the temperatures dropped dramatically once the sun had set. However, the officer's concern was about the possibility of the freshwater supply freezing, which, yes, that was a possibility. (laughs) 
early on April 14th, a ship named Caronia message Titanic, warned about a bunch of pack ice in the direction that Titanic was going, and a lot more than usual. They kept note of it, but didn't really think much of it. Alongside Light Roller was 6th Officer James Moody. Light Roller decided to test Moody on navigational skills and asked Moody to predict when Titanic would reach the ice based on Caronia's earlier message. Moody answered at uh, 11 p.m., but Light Roller had already calculated it would actually be closer to 9.30 p.m. Light Roller believed this meant Moody's navigational skills were not up to par, but it's possible that Moody based his calculations on the warning from either the America or the Nordham, of which Light Roller was unaware. In fact, a message remained in Ismay, um, Bruce Ismay's pocket from Baltic, while another message from the portliner Mazaba had gone unnoticed on the bridge. It warned of heavy pack ice, large icebergs, and field ice located at latitude 42 north and 41.25 north, and long longitude 40 west to 50.30 west. By this point, Titanic had already entered these coordinates. Smith knew the risk of dangers and ordered the ship to travel 10 miles further south of the regular shipping lane as a way to try and avoid the ice. It is believed Smith would have further altered the ship's course and reduced speed in order to avoid the ice had he known of the other warnings. Smith attended dinner with Ismay and, uh, and the others as usual. During this, he requested Ismay give him the message from Baltic in order to post it on the bridge, which Ismay obliged. After dinner, Smith was invited to a reception by businessman George Widener. The two had be befriended each other during the journey, and Smith accepted. He reluctantly excused himself at 9 p.m. in order to return to the bridge. The crew reported a calm and clear night on the seas, but the cold had was a cause for concern. Light Roller remarked to Smith how a breeze would have made it easier to spot ice in the mist, as it would have moved the mist, but because it was clear and calm, the mist was staying right where it was. Furthermore, it was a moonless night, and the crow's nest had no binoculars. Of course. Of course, yeah. Important to note how the cold drove nearly all passengers inside. The first-class passengers were dressed up for the second-to-last night dinner, a common practice on ocean liners as the final night was reserved for packing. Third-class passengers were also roaring with celebrations, as well as in the lower decks. In the movie Titanic, the scene where they're down in the lower decks with third-class passengers and they're having that, you know... Dance thing. It's pretty accurate. I mean, yeah. that's pretty much what it was. Yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> they were on the boat for a very different reason than the first and second class passengers to some extent. Yeah. Well, they were, yeah. They were all immigrating for the most part and the rich people weren't really. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> That's a super, super heavy overgeneralization. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so first officer William Murdoch relieved light roller at 10 p.m. Remarking on how cold it was had become. At the same time nearby, SS Californians Captain Stanley Lord ordered the sh ship to stop for the night and wait for daylight to navigate through the ice fields, believing the course too risky during the night. This becomes very important later. Phillips was on duty in the wireless office, waiting to be relieved by Bride. Bride had offered to start two hours early due to an exhausting day in which both crew members had spent 12 hours working. With one hour left, Phillips was messaging the relay station at Cape Race, Newfoundland, with 
the Titanic's coordinates and status. Without warning, at 11 p.m., Californian interrupted, saying, quote, Say, old man, we are surrounded by ice and stopped, end quote. Enraged, Philip messaged Californian literally to shut up uh, as he was in the process of messaging Cape Race, sending Californian's operator into silence. 20 minutes to midnight, an object was spotted in the distance. Lookouts Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee waited to inform the bridge as they attempted to calculate the object's size. It appeared small, but soon grew in size as the ship closed distance. Fleet gave three rings on the bell to indicate the, to the bridge that an object was ahead. He then telephoned down and was answered immediately by Moody. Fleet stated, Iceberg right ahead. Moody thanked Fleet and repeated the message to the bridge, and Murdoch ordered a hard turn to starboard and telegraphed the engine room for full speed astern to both engines. Fleet and Lee braced for impact and were momentarily relieved when it appeared Titanic successfully, if barely, missed the iceberg. However, their hopes were dashed by how close the iceberg appeared next to the ship and ice began crashing down onto the ship's deck. Furthermore, Fleet and Lee thought they could hear the sound of metal scraping. Now close to the iceberg, it became apparent it was difficult to see due to the it being what's known as a blueberg, which is an iceberg that is flipped upside down, exposing the transparent ice that's usually beneath the waves. Crew and passengers alike were awoken by the sound. Seaman Fred Clench staggered out of bed onto the deck and could hear rushing seawater below him. Several of the crew that, that were on Titanic had been on Olympic when, the, when she lost her propeller and assumed the same had just happened to Titanic. A steward even joked, quote, another Belfast trip, end quote. It wasn't until pans and food in the first-class dining saloon suddenly rolled onto the floor did crew begin to realize something serious had happened. The impact snapped off the iron rivets along the plate seams, opening a 12-meter-long breach into Titanic's hull below the waterline. Water began flooding into the ship at a rate of 7 long tons per second, which is 15 times faster than it could have been pumped out. Water initially rushed into boiler room 6, striking 2nd engineer J.H. Heskiff and leading stroker Frederick Barrett. Both fled and sealed the watertight door behind them. The sudden exposure to frigid water risked an explosion of the hot, high-pressure steam boilers. Stokers and firemen were ordered to reduce the fires and vent the boilers to prevent this from happening. By the time this was complete, the men were waist-high in freezing water. Not ideal. No. Not ideal also that the boiler room is below sea level. I mean, none of this is ideal. No. Captain, anyway. Captain, soon, Captain Smith soon realized the gravity of the situation, and when Wilde asked if it, if it was serious, he replied, quote, certainly it is more than serious, end quote. Smith and Tom, Thomas Andrews went below to inspect the damage and found the forward cargo holds were flooded, with the mailroom quickly following suit. Furthermore, six of Titanic's watertight compartments have been breached and were taking on water. 45 minutes following the collision, 13,500 long tons of water had flowed into the ship. That's a whole lot of water. Yes. 
Five minutes past midnight, Smith gave the official order to abandon ship. He ordered his crew to uncover the lifeboats and muster the passengers, and for radio operators to begin sending distress calls. Unfortunately, radio operators accidentally gave Titanic's position to the west side of the ice belt, sending rescuers 25 kilometers in the wrong direction by the time they were able to respond. Mail workers attempted to save the 400,000 items of mail in the mailroom, but the area was quickly filling with water and they were unable to do any significant help. Stewards worked to prepare passengers and have them put on their life belts. However, many passengers believed this to be a joke and there were reports some began playing soccer with the ice chunks on the deck. The noise level also made it difficult for a crew to give orders or relay information to one another. With the sound of the passengers on top of the actual sound of the rushing water, it was... And the alarm bells? Lifeboat number seven, the first one launched, left with only a third of its possible 65 passenger capacity, as many passengers did not understand the seriousness of the situation. Number five left with 41, number three left with 32, number eight left with 39, and number one left with just 12 out of 40. Passengers became injured in the rush, and one woman fell between number 10 and the ship's side, but was luckily caught before plunging into the water. She was literally caught by her ankle and then pulled back up on the ship. Meanwhile, the stopped Californian was within range to see Titanic. Third officer Charles Grove had witnessed a vessel later determined to be Titanic, 16 to 19 kilometers away on the starboard side, turn sharply to port and come to a halt. Ten minutes prior to Titanic's collision, Californian's only radio operator, Cyril Evans, had gone to bed, leaving the radio unmanned and shut off. It is believed had he remained at his post, more people would have survived the sinking. An hour after the collision, 2nd Officer Herbert Stone saw five white rockets ascend into the sky above the unknown ship. Stone telephoned to Captain Lord to ask what the rockets might mean, but Lord never acted on the report. However, Stone's anxiety increased, and he said to another crew member, quote, A ship is not going to fire rockets at sea for nothing. End quote. Passengers began to understand how serious the situation was by 1.20 a.m., and husbands began escorting their wives and children to the lifeboats. Most of these men would perish and never see their families again. Around the same time, Bride suggested Phillips send the new SOS signal as time was running out. Carpathia was the closest ship at 93 kilometers and responded, making its way towards Titanic. Unfortunately, it was a slower ship than Titanic. Mount Temple also responded, but pack ice forced the ship to stop and delay a rescue attempt. Despite popular belief, the phrase women and children first was never used on Titanic, and this wasn't an actual maritime law. Though Lightroller and Smith said basically the same thing when Lightroller asked, quote, hadn't we better get the women and children into the boats, sir? Smith responded, put the women and children in and lower away. Unfortunately, Murdoch and Light Roller misinterpreted Smith's orders as women and children only, which resulted in 74% of women and 52% of children on board escaping, while only 20% of the men would survive. Some crew even actively attempted to prevent men from boarding the lifeboats. This led to complica complications for male survivors back home. I'll get to that in a bit. Also, there is an urban legend of a man sneaking onto a lifeboat dressed as a woman, but I found out during the research that this was actually not true. I thought it, I legit thought it was a, a true story, but it read and it's not true. I know it's, but 
Anyway, lifeboats were starting to be filled to capacity, with some even being getting filled beyond capacity, and the final lifeboat was launched at 2.05 a.m. Father Thomas Biles began hearing confessions and was giving absolutions while the band began playing outside the gym. Later, both bands were combined and reported to have played Alexander's Ragtime Band and other lively songs. It is also rumored the band played Nearer My God to Thee, although this has no substantial evidence. Titanic's list reached a 10-degree angle by 1.30 a.m., listing higher and higher with each passing minute. At 2.18 a.m., the ship snapped in half and the bows sank into the depths. The stern sank at a 90-degree angle before disappearing beneath the surface. It was. It literally sank like on its side. Like they're yeah. pretty certain because what I learned is that when they eventually dived it to to when they located Titanic, the way that there was still impact on the bottom of the seafloor, it indicated that it hit straight on and then like collapsed st- down. Stern or nose? Uh the back of the ship because the, the bow snapped off and yeah. sank first, and yeah. then the. The stern. the stern went down and then straight down like that. Yeah, and then rested. And then hit the bottom and then gradually came down and landed on, like, up right side up. Yeah. Yeah, so meanwhile, as the Titanic is furiously sending out distress signals, I'll talk about the ship that actually arrived to save the survivors, which is the RMS Carpathia, which is run by Cunard Lines, which is the competition, essentially, of of Titanic. So the RMS Carpathia departed from New York City on April 11th, 1912, bound for uh, Fiume, Austria, Hungary, which is now uh, Rijeka, Croatia. On the night of April 14th, Carpathia's wireless operator, Harold Cottom, had missed previous messages from the Titanic as he was on the bridge at the time. After his shift had ended at midnight, though, he continued listening to the transmitter before bed and received messages from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, stating that they had private traffic for Titanic. He thought he would be helpful, and at 12.11 on April 15th, sent a message to Titanic stating that Cape Cod had traffic for them. In reply, he received Titanic's distress signal, stating that they had struck ice and were in need of immediate assistance. He took the message to the bridge, where the officers on watch were skeptical about the seriousness of the, of the distress call. Agitated by this, Cottom rushed down the ladder to the captain's cabin and awakened Captain Arthur Henry Rostron, who immediately sprang into action and, quote, gave the order to turn the ship around and asked the operator if he was absolutely sure it was a distress signal from the Titanic. All of the quotes kind of in this are from testimony that was given by these captains after this whole thing, or given after the whole thing. Uh, Cottom confirmed that he had received a distress signal from the Titanic requiring immediate assistance, gave Titanic's position, and said he was absolutely certain of the message. While dressing, Captain Rostron set course for Titanic and sent for the chief engineer and told him to call another watch of stokers and make all possible speed for Titanic as she was in trouble. Rostron testified later that the distance to Titanic was 58 nautical miles, which is about 107 kilometers, and took took Carpathia three and a half hours. At the same time, Rostron had Carpathia's crew prepare hot drinks and soup prepared for for survivors, prepare the public rooms as dormitories, and have doctors ready to treat any injured survivors, and to have oil ready to pour down the lavatories to calm the water on the sides of the ship should the sea become rough. Carpathia was only rated for 15 and a half knots of speed, and had not exceeded 14 knots since her shakedown cruise a decade before, but by some accounts, she reached as much as 17 and a half knots during her dash to rescue Titanic survivors. Rostron ordered as much heating and hot water cut off in order to make as much steam as possible for available engines and had extra lookouts on watch to spot ice. Cotta, meanwhile, messaged Titanic that Carpathia was coming as quickly as possible and expect to be there within four hours. 
He refrained from descending more signals after this, trying to keep the air clear for Titanic's distress signals. Which is really smart. <laughs> uh, Carpathia reached the edge of the ice field by 2.45 a.m. and for the next two hours dodged icebergs. She arrived at distress position at 4 a.m., approximately an hour and a half after Titanic had completely gone down, claiming more than 1,500 lives. For the next four and a half hours, the Carpathia took on 705 survivors from Titanic's 20 lifeboats. Throughout the rescue, Carpathia's own passengers assisted in any way they could. By 9 a.m., the last survivor had been picked up, and Rostron gave the order to get underway. Now, there were a couple of options in terms of where to disembark the passengers. First option was actually to disembark them in the Azores, because it was the closest. (laughs) They obviously decided against that. And the other option was Halifax, which was the cheapest port that they could go to. But after Rostrin consulted with Bruce Ismay of White Star, they decided to disembark the passengers in New York where they were originally going. News of the Titanic disaster spread on shore, and the humble Carpathia became the center of intense media attention as she steamed westwards towards New York at 14 knots. Rostrin ordered that no news stories be transmitted directly to the media, deferring such responsibilities to the White Star offices at Cotter... White Star offices, as Cotton provided details to the Titanic sister ship Olympic. There was a lot of pressure from the media and from journalists on Rostron and on the Carpathia to give them details of what was happening. They were even offering rewards, like financial incentives, to give them details, but Rostron was strictly against that and made sure that no news was leaked. It was up to White Star to deal with it. It was really their own problem, and he didn't want to be the one to break, break news, basically. On Wednesday, April 17th, the scout cruiser USS Chester began escorting Carpathia to New York. Cottam and Titanic surviving junior wireless operator Harold Bride began transmitting the names of third-class survivors to Chester. Along the way, Carpathia was slowed by by fog, ice patches, and storms, and it finally arrived in New York on the evening of April 18th. When they arrived, it was a huge event. Word had been spreading for ages about, or well, not for ages, but word had been spreading that Carpathia was carrying the passengers and was bringing them to New York, and so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of hubbub <laughs> in New York when the Carpathia arrived. And for their efforts, the crew of Carpathia were awarded, awarded medals, with Rostron also being awarded a medal and a silver cup by one of the survivors. And he was also knighted by King George V and was later presented a Congressional Gold Medal, the highest honor the U.S. Congress could confer while a guest of President Taft at the White House. So, and then they were involved in the testimony after the fact, but Rostron essentially came to the rescue and was like the most on the ball person, it seems like the entire night (laughs) in terms of the rescue and dealing with the whole situation. I was really actually impressed reading that. I didn't, I knew Carpathia was the ship that had rescued them and whatnot, but I hadn't realized the exact details of everything that Rostron had done and how, you know, quickly he had really he did his job in the most it's exactly what you want someone in that situation to do yeah. but it's just that there's so many instances throughout this story of people not doing what they're supposed to do yeah it's an unfortunate thing because a lot of people died yeah as you'll find out things changed but before before that i guess we need to give you the unfortunate statistics mm-hmm. 1514 people died which was 68 percent of all people on board of those who died, 80% of the men who were on board died. So 1,352. 109 women, or 26% of the women. And 53 children, which is 49% of all children on board. 
76% of the crew perished, including Chief Officer Wild, 6th Officer Moody, Chief Engineer Bell, and Captain Smith. Had the lifeboats been, all the lifeboats been filled to capacity, it is possible that 53.4% of the crew, or the passengers could have survived. The youngest victim was named Sidney Leslie Goodwin, and he was 19 months. Three died in the lifeboats due to injuries, and one died after being pulled onto Carpathia. 150 victims were buried in Halifax, Nova Scotia, across three cemeteries, most in Fairview Lawn Cemetery. One thing to note is, for as for the Californian, after the captain woke up at 4 a.m., he agreed with Carpathia to, after Carpathia had left, he, he agreed for Californian to travel to where the Titanic was and look for additional survivors. Instead, all they found was wreck and bodies. Apparently, a total of 333 bodies were pulled from the sea. So one thing that, like, it's kind of sobering learning about this because Lindsay stated this before, it is a very romanticized event, but it, like, people don't really understand how huge of a tragedy this was. Yeah, that that's something I definitely, um, I don't know. Yeah, like, I started to really think about that and notice that just... I mean, I guess for context for you guys, we've been trying to come up with a title for the for the episode, and it's been really difficult because everything just seems really like contrived and sort of almost like corny because you think of the like romantic narrative of the Titanic and everything, even though there's really nothing romantic about a massive ship sinking to the bottom of the ocean and taking fifteen hundred people with it, and even just like you know, like I said, math math is important. I mean, yeah, if all of those lifeboats had been filled, they could have saved fifty three percent of the passengers. But the ship was only at fifty percent capacity in terms of passengers. What it, what would have happened? If can you imagine how tragic, even more tragic, this could have been if it was a full ship? Well, and the other thing is like, had the Californian's radio operator not gone to bed? Also that. <laughs> ten minutes. He literally went to bed ten minutes before. There's like just so many things through this story that just like make you want to yell at things because it's like simplest mistake. Yeah. Like the simplest thing, like 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, meant the, 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 the difference between life and death for a lot of people, not just, you know, a couple here and there. It was, you know, hundreds. Yeah. Well, uh, and the other thing is like a lot of people get certain people's roles in Titanic wrong mm-hmm. and people who tend to be vilified are Bruce Ismay, which, who was like a big, uh, an executive at agent. He pretty much. Yeah. At, like White, White Star. I, White Star. Yeah. He gets vilified, but if you read like the first ten accounts, it's not. There's nothing really his fault involved. In well, not, nothing that, but like he gets vilified because he survived. But it's yeah. like that's like if you learn what he did mm-hmm. on the ship, he was pretty. He did a lot of heroic things. He made sure people got in the lifeboats. He tried to convince people to get in the lifeboats, and people just wouldn't listen because they were like, "Oh, it's it's not nothing. that serious and whatnot." Yeah. And eventually, someone told him to get on to one of the lifeboats and with hesitation he did the other person is captain smith smith did a lot to save as many people as he could and he did the, the best he, the, could. he did the best he could and he did the captain gentlemanly thing i guess to went do which was that he went down with the ship i mean it is required by law now yeah that the captain cannot leave the ship, leave the ship until 
everyone is is like everyone is off. Because this actually came up really not that long ago in Italy. Oh yeah. But yeah. yeah. So uh well I'll talk to th- about that in a moment <laughs> because I have quite a bit to say about that. But uh, <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's um yeah, it's just I what I didn't realize Sorry to interject. It's it's a bit of an aside, just going back to Carpathia for a second. So 40,000 people were waiting in New York when they got there. But what I did not realize, after Carpathia dropped everybody, they were restocked with food and stuff and sent back to on their original course to Austria. Uh, her crew were given a, a bonus by Cunard as a reward for... I would hope so. Right? I mean, you just <laughs> saved a bunch of people. Yeah. Like, I guess you can have a reward. Um, but actually what I didn't know was that some of Titanic's passengers joined together to give them an additional bonus of nearly 900 pounds, which is the equivalent of about 88,000 pounds today, to divide amongst the crew members. Wow. So that's a thing I didn't know. Yeah. I, know, I just had to... Felt like that was important to bring right. up. Another quick thing I'm going to point out is there was a couple people who were suspected of being the, the man who dressed as a woman. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to... I know their names, but I'm not going to say who they are because, as you all know, it, it's not true. It never happened. And these people were ridiculed for the remainder of their life. It yeah. was ridiculous. One interesting story, and just real quick, and, I'll, and then we'll move on. One man, he was a lifeboat operator, so he was, had to be on the lifeboat in order to operate it. When he returned home and knocked on the door to his mother's house, she slammed the door in his face and never spoke to him again. She was ashamed. Wow. It's like, imagine escaping. He did his job. <laughs> well, imagine escape. Well, because there's that whole mentality that oh, women yeah. and children first, yeah, right? Yeah. But the fact is, yeah, he was doing his job. She never spoke to him again. It's like, what the fuck? Wow. I there's so many imagine surviving one of the the greatest disasters of the 20th century and then being completely vilified for surviving. Yeah. I imagine there was probably a lot of survivors guilt and things like that happening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Especially just, you know. Yeah. But even before the survivors had arrived in New York, investigations were planned were being planned already cuz obviously. Um It'd be shocking if they didn't. That would be even more shocking. Inquiries were held both in the U.S. and the U.K. The former was more robustly critical of traditions and practices and was a lot more scathing of the failures involved. And the latter, so the U.K. inquiries were a lot more broadly technical and expert-oriented. And I feel like there's probably a good reason for a difference in the approach since it was not an American ship. The United States is going to focus a lot more on pilot error, or, well, I guess captain error in this case, and human error. The U.S. Senate inquiry started on April 19th, so a day after Carpathia arrived. So basically, like, they were already making these plans as Carpathia was on its way. The chairman was Senator William Alden Smith, and he wanted to gather accounts from passengers and crew while the events were still fresh in their minds. So it actually, it does make sense. You don't want to hold this, like, a year after the fact, because no one's going to remember exactly everything. May as well get it all out when people are still living it, basically. (laughs) Which also is problematic in its own ways, but... I guess the best way to get a good first-hand account of what happened. And also while they were all still on American soil, because that's important. A lot of these passengers weren't Americans. (laughs) Or they were at least trying to uh, immigrate. 
I'm really curious as to what happened to some, I mean, I know that a lot of the immigrants probably obviously got to stay, but it's like, can you imagine surviving Titanic, arriving in New York, and then just having to deal with immigration stuff? And then getting rejected. And then getting possibly rejected? Like, that would be the worst. I just, uh, the worst. Anyways, Smith, yeah, needed to subpoena all surviving British passengers and crew while they were also all still on American soil. And it prevented all of them from returning to the UK before the American inquiry was completed, which meant that Smith was really, really intensely condemned in British press because they saw him as being opportunistic and saw the inquiry as a means of gaining political prestige and, quote, seizing his moment to stand on the world stage. Smith already had a reputation as a campaigner for safety on U.S. railroads, so basically, and had wanted to investigate any possible malpractices by railroad tycoon J.P. Morgan, who was Titanic's ultimate owner. So, like, Smith had legitimate reasons for wanting to do this inquiry. The British were just pissy because their people were stuck there while the American inquiry happened first. Like, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if the British were just mad because their inquiry wasn't first. Like, it just seems like a thing that could happen. I don't know. The British Board of Trade's inquiry into the disaster was headed by Lord Mersey and took place on the 2nd of May, well, between the 2nd of May and the 3rd of July. And it was being run by the Board of Trade, who had previously approved the ship, and it was seen as having little interest in its own or White Star's conduct being found negligent. So there was a lot of criticism about that, obviously, because, I mean, it's kind of like when the police investigate themselves, it's like, well, how can, <laughs> how can you really do that objectively when you're the one who did it? Yeah. <laughs> and so... Yeah, I think most of the uh, the really good information and things that led to changes came out of the American Inquiry, which was a lot more focused on the actual conduct of the people involved and not just like the technical specs of the ship, which the Board of Trade was a lot more interested in since they had a vested interest in not showing that <laughs> this was a problem. <laughs> and yeah, so each inquiry took testimony from both passengers and crew of Titanic, crew and members of Leland Lyons Californian, Captain Arthur Rostron of Carpathia, and other experts. The British Inquiry also took far greater expert tes testimony, making it the longest and most detailed court of inquiry in British history up to that time. The two inquiries reached broadly similar conclusions. The regulations on the number of lifeboats that ships had to carry were out of date and inadequate, obviously. Uh, Captain Smith had failed to take proper heat of ice warnings, also obviously. The lifeboats had not been properly filled or crewed, again, obviously. And the collision was the direct result of steaming into a dangerous area at too high a speed. All of these were obvious things. <laughs> So kind of easy to reach a similar conclusion, I would hope. But neither increased findings listed negligence by White Star Line, or it's the company that owned it. The American Inquiry concluded that since those involved had followed standard practice, the disaster was essentially an act of God. The British Inquiry concluded that Smith had followed long-standing practice that had not previously been shown to be unsafe, noting that British ships alone had carried 3.5 million passengers over the previous decade with the loss of just 10 lives, and concluded that Smith had done, quote, only that which other skilled men would have done in the same position, end quote. Lord Mersey did, however, find fault with the extremely high speed, which was that they were at 22 knots, which was maintained following numerous ice, numerous ice warnings, noting that without hindsight, quote, what was a mistake in the case of the Titanic would without doubt be negligence in this, any similar case in the future. Uh, the recommendations included strong suggestions for major changes in maritime regulations to implement new safety measures, as well as an international ice patrol was set up to monitor the presence of icebergs in the North Atlantic, which still exists today. It's mostly manned by the U.S. Coast Guard planes, but it actually is still an active. Is there even a lot of transatlantic cruises anymore? 
Shipping, like ship, like cargo. Oh, shipping. shipping. Okay, good point. Those shipping lines are extremely busy. All right. So, yeah. I dis- disregard. <laughs> um, maritime safety regulations were also harmonized internationally through the creation of the International Convention for Safety of Life at Sea. So, yeah, both of which are still in place and really important. <laughs> Uh, on the 18th of June, 1912, Marconi gave evidence to the Court of Inquiry regarding the tele- telegraphy. It said its final report recommended that all liners carry the system and that sufficient operators maintain a constant service. So that's essentially what happened with the inquiries after. It does make sense that, yeah, okay, like, it was essentially an act of God. There was some fault in terms of getting into the mess in the first place, but... There's so many things that just kind of went wrong that it's no one's specific fault, and you can't just say it was like, well, Captain Smith drove it into an iceberg, it's done. It was like, well, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not how it happened. The good news is a lot of good things have changed from it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, like, just the last thing I want to say is, like, yeah, there was definitely negligence, but to say anyone was criminally or solely responsible is ludicrous. No. It is absolutely sorry. It is absolutely ludicrous, and also absolutely ludicrous to say it was White Star Line's fault, which I kind of realized as I was looking through the history of White Star Lines and Cunard a little bit. Uh, there's nothing really to suggest that White Star had anything to do with this, as obviously the inquiry found. But the the thing about the Titanic going too fast through the ice field is really important because I'm going to talk about some shipping company history now. But like the going fast thing really matters especially from the starting with the history of black ball lines and paying captains extra to go fast. Pretty much all shipping lines just focused on getting there fast. They didn't really care how they got there. They just wanted to get there fast because makes sense, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same idea, principle behind shipping things now. Faster it gets there, the more you can take, the more money you can make. The interesting part about White Star and also why there were so many third-class passengers and why they had such big berths for third-class passengers, was that White Star branded their services by focusing a lot more on providing steady and comfortable passages for not just upper-class travelers, but immigrants and third-class passengers. So unlike pretty much any other company, they actually branded themselves to be popular amongst the working class and be like their chosen line, because I think they realized there was a need for it. (laughs) It's most famous for the innovative vessel the Oceanic of 1870, and then also for the losses of... Titanic <laughs> and well and the Britannic but for different reasons it wasn't really White Star's fault in that case or I guess in either case but still <laughs> they weren't really operating Britannic when it went down White Star began its North Atlantic run between Liverpool and Boston with six nearly identical ships which was the Oceanic class so it was Oceanic 1 Atlantic Baltic and Republic followed by the slightly larger Celtic and Adriatic it was customary for shipping lanes to have a common or shipping lines to have a common theme name for their ships so White Star had given theirs the ending IC, so ick. Every single ship will end with that. And they also adopted a buff-colored funnel with a black top as a distinguishing feature for their ships and a distinctive house flag, which was a, rod, a red broad pennant with two tails bearing a white five-pointed star. Initially, each ship was to measure, 400, measure 420 feet in length, 40 feet in width, and approximately 3,737 tons. Equipped with compound, or compound expansion engines powering a single screw and capable of speeds of up to 14 knots. And their transatlantic passenger service launched in the spring of 1871 and got off to a bit of a rocky start when Oceanic had to turn around almost immediately after leaving. Things were starting on fire. It wasn't a good time. Um, and then they continued to build ships. Atlantic sailed on her maiden voyage on June 8th of 1871. Baltic left on hers on September 14th after a name, after a name change. Uh, so Baltic and Celtic had originally been named Arctic and 
I can't remember the other one, but they were changed due to superstitious reasons because two serious sinkings had happened in those two oceans. And so they changed the name because it was meant, yeah, superstitious. And seafaring people are very superstitious. <laughs> very superstitious. <laughs> yeah. So the fourth vessel, Republic, sailed on her maiden voyage on February 1st, 1872. Adriatic entered service on April 11th, and Celtic launched on April 24th. All of these ships began their careers with notable success, but the most notable was Adriatic. She became the first White Star ship to capture the Blue Ribbon, having completed a record westbound crossing in seven days, 23 hours, and 17 minutes at an average speed of 14 and a half knots. In January 1873, Baltic became the first of the line to capture the Blue Ribbon for an eastbound crossing, having completed a return to Liverpool in seven days, 20 hours, and nine minutes at an average speed of 15 knots. Like many other shipping lines, White Star suffered heavy losses during World War I, which began in 1914, including some of their most prestigious vessels. RMS Oceanic was the first major loss in September 1914 when she ran aground near the Shetland Islands due to a navigational error. The first White Star ship lost to enemy action was the liner Arabic, which was torpedoed off the Irish coast in August 1915 with the loss of 44 lives. But the largest loss of the war for White Star came in 1916 with Titanic's sister ship. So... The two identical ships that we talked about at the beginning, Titanic and Britannic, they're both gone. <laughs> both sunk. Basically, it served as a hospital ship in, in Greece during World War I, and it was sunk near the island of Kia in May after striking a naval mine while in service. It was the largest loss for the company and also the largest ship sunk during World War I. Sad. Yeah. Poor Britannic. Although... Most of the passengers on Britannic survived yeah, yeah. because of the new Life, safety measures. Lifeboat measures. Well, lifeboat measures and overall safety measures put in place because of the loss of, his, of her sister. Well, there's like a weird irony in that, but that's also like good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, it just comes to show that... It, it all comes full circle. Yeah, but also like as tragic as the Titanic was... It did, they didn't go down in vain, and those no. people did not die in vain. I mean, the fortunate thing about most tragedies that large is that, fortunately, that they almost never happen in vain. Something usually comes of it. Many White Star vessels were requisitioned for various types of war service, but most commonly as troop ships. So the RMS Olympic transported over 200,000 troops during the conflict. Quick fun fact ran before about White Star, though, first. White Star actually originally started as a company to serve traffic to and from Australia, especially during the gold rushes of the 1850s. But when White Star collapsed and it was purchased by Thomas Ismay in 1868, the company was then rebuilt as a transatlantic line. Can you imagine if, like, the Titanic, like, or a similar thing had happened on the way to Australia? It's like, you'd be so in the middle of nowhere that, like, no one's coming to get you. Well, you gotta wonder, do they go around the Horn of Africa, or... I think so. Oof. I didn't look. Not the know. Horn of Africa. What am I thinking? Uh, Cape of Good... Is it the Cape of Good Hope? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. That might be a correction we post to Facebook later, but I don't know. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah. So, White Star was the one major line, but then Cunard Lines, which owned the re- ship that rescued Titanic, <laughs> was White Star's main competition. And they were started in 1839 by Samuel Cunard, a ship owner from Halifax, Nova Scotia. And he was awarded the first British transatlantic steamship mail contract. The next year, he formed the British North American Royal Mail Steam Packet Company, together with Robert Napier, the famous Scottish steamship engine designer and builder, to create the line's four pioneer paddle steamers on the Liverpool-Halifax-Boston route. 
For the most of the next 30 years, Cunard held the blue ribbon for the fastest Atlantic voyage. However, in the 1870s, Cunard fell behind its rivals, the White Star Line and the Inman Line, and in an attempt to meet this competition, they reorganized as the Cunard Steamship Company in 1879. Cunard's new chairman was John Burns, a son of one of the firm's original founders, and Cunard commissioned four steel-hulled express liners beginning with Servia of 1881, the first passenger liner with electric lighting throughout the whole ship. In 1884, Cunard purchased the almost new blue ribboned winner Oregon from the Guion Line when that firm defaulted on payments to the shipyard. Convenient for Cunard. <laughs> um, the same year, Cunard also commissioned the record breakers Umbria and Etruria, capable of 19 and a half knots each, which is crazy fast for a steamship at the time. <laughs> White Star and Cunard had something of an arms race going, with White Star threatening Cunard's dominance in 1887 by building two new liners, to which Cunard responded in 1893 with the two even faster blue ribbon winners, Campania and Luciana capable of 21.8 knots, and no sooner had they then re-established their supremacy, new rivals emerged. Beginning in the late 1860s, several German firms commissioned liners that were almost as fast as the British mail steamers from Liverpool. In 1897, Kaiser Wilhelm de Grosse of Norddeutscher Lloyd raised the blue ribbon to 22.3 knots and was followed by a succession of German record breakers. White Star countered the Germans by commissioning four very profitable Celtic-class liners of more moderate speed for its secondary Liverpool to New York service. In 1902, White Star joined the well-capitalized American Combine, the International Mercantile Marine Co., which owned White Star, and so IMM and White Star were both relieved of any wrongdoing during the Titanic thing. But International Mercantile Marine Co. also owned the American line, including the old Inman line and some few other lines. IMM also had trade agreements, trade agreements with uh, Hamburg America, which will also be referred to as HAPAG, and that's the current name. So whenever you see a C-can with HAPAG on it, it means Hamburg America. They also had a trade agreement with Norddeutsche Lloyd. But because British prestige was at stake in this arms race, the British provided Cunard with an annual subsidy of 150,000 great Brit- er, pounds, plus a low-interest rate loan of 2.5 million pounds to pay for the construction of the two superliners, the two blue-ribboned winners, Lusitania and Mauritania, capable of 26 knots. Not to be outdone, White Star ordered the Olympic-class liners and Hamburg-America ordered the Imperator-class liners. Both new classes were larger and more luxurious than the Cunarders, but they weren't as fast. So Cunard also then ordered a ship, the Aquitania, capable of 24 knots, to complete the Liverpool mail fleet. But the expected competition between these three sets of superliners, which honestly sounds like so cool when it's building up, and then you're like, it's so sad when you realize that Titanic ruined it all. So, the expe- yeah, this, this, it was prevented by a lot of other events. Most notably was the sinking of the Titanic on her maiden voyage kind of axed a lot of the plans for these, these liners. White Star also lost Britannic, and Cunard lost Lusitania, and Hapeg lost three superliners to the Allies as war, as war reparations. So basically, the Titanic and then World War I ruined this arms race of superliners. Um, arms race. <laughs> <laughs> it basically was. <laughs> it was like the space race, but for, for ocean liners. The liner race? The, the race to cross the Atlantic? I don't know. Uh, due to First World War losses, Cunard began a world, or post-war rebuilding program, including 11 immediate, intermediate liners. It acquired the former Hapeg Imperator and renamed it the Berengaria to replace the loss of Lusitania as the running mate for Mauritania and Aquitania, and Southampton replaced Liverpool as the British destination for the three shipping express service services. By 1926, Cunard's fleet was larger than before the war, and White Star was in decline, having been sold by IMM. 
Despite dramatic reduction in North American passengers caused by the shipping depression beginning in 1929, the Germans, Italians, and the French commissioned new ships of state prestige liners. In 1930, Cunard ordered an 80,000-ton liner that was to be the first of two record breakers fast enough to fit into a two-ship weekly Southampton New York service. Work on hull number 534, as it was called, was halted in 1931, though, because of economic conditions, so we're in the throes of the Great Depression. Obviously had a bit of a bit of a hit on commercial shipping. In 1934, both White Star and Cunard were in serious financial pr- trouble, and an MP for Clyde Bank, where hull number 534 was sitting idle, made a passionate plea for a loan to finish the ship and restart the dormant British economy. The government offered Cunard a loan of £3 million to complete the ship and an additional £5 million to build a second ship on the condition that they merged with White Star. So the merger took place on the 10th of May 1934, creating Cunard White Star Limited. The merger was accomplished with Cunard owning about two-thirds of the capital. So Cunard really came out on top on that one. Due to surplus tonnage, older ships were scrapped. This included the Morentia and ex-White Star Liners Olympic and Homeric. The Olympic did did well. Had a good yeah. service. I have to, I have to say, uh, a lot of people like don't realize what happened to the Olympic. And like, did that one sink too? No, nope. It just was decommissioned. It, it was de- well. It had a very tragic fate because mm. it did super well. I don't know if you talk about it, but Not really, no. it did super well and like made all of its voyages with practically no issues. issues. It survived the war, and then there was plans to make it a like once it was done. They were going to make it into a a floating hotel similar to what the like Queen Mary the, is it the Queen Mary? I think so. The Queen Mary, the one in Long Island at least. They're going to make it into a floating hotel in New York, but then the depression hit, and suddenly people, they didn't have the money to do it, and it was sold for scrap. And also because of the merger, they couldn't keep it because they could only have X number of tons of ship basically to run. So because it was an old ship. Com- Parable to the new ones that had just been built and was smaller. It had to go, which is disappointing. Also, ex-White Starship Majestic was sold when hull number 534, which became Queen Mary, uh, replaced her in the express mail service. Cunard White Star started construction on Queen Elizabeth, which was the second ship that the British off- the government offered to pay for if they merged. They started construction on Queen Elizabeth, and a smaller ship, the second Marantia, joined the fleet and could also be used on the Atlantic run when one of the queens was in dry dock. They were just referred to as the queens, and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and during World War II, the queens carried over two million servicemen and were credited by Churchill as, having, as helping to shorten the war by a year. All four of Cunard White Star's express liners, the two queens, Marantia and Aquitania, survived, but many secondary ships were lost during World War II, as obviously the Germans were hunting in the North Atlantic. <laughs> That's pretty happy hunting ground for them. And yeah, so Cunard continued on for a while, but eventually in 1998, it was acquired by the Carnival Corporation and accounts for 8.7% of that company's revenue as of 2012. Yeah. Rant away. <laughs> That's the story of a Titanic. Yeah, I've... Oh, quick. One more thing to add, sorry. Yeah. Uh, the queens were replaced by Queen Elizabeth II, which was designed for a dual, dual role. And then QE2 was replaced by Queen Mary II in 2004. There you go. Okay, anyways, sorry. Well, <laughs> the, the, the thing about, like, cruise lines now is, like, yeah, the safety regulations and whatnot, it's all improved and whatnot, but how sketchy these companies are hasn't... Changed. In, in fact, it's probably gotten worse. <laughs> 
Well, I think because now there's like, I mean, I imagine there's to some extent just so many fewer passengers because people just take planes now. It's not like it's not like before where people were using these ships to just like actually as transportation. Now it's like fun to go on a cruise. That's actually your vacation. It's not like I need to get across the North Atlantic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not the same. Well, I mean, you start at one destination and more times than not, you end in the same destination. You just go in a circle. Yeah. Like, yeah, you'll stop at different places along the way, but it's like, uh, it's, it's just like, I know we'll, we'll eventually talk about Costa Concordia and I'm sure in that episode, we'll talk more about the sketchiness of these companies, but let's just say this is one of the reasons why I refuse to take a cruise line. And I mean, if they change things up, that'll be good. The other other part of me is like I'm afraid of open water, mm. the common phobia. I guess that's fair. Probably not, but I'll just say it is. Um, <laughs> it is reasonably okay. common. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't want to end up a statistic to the sea. So you're probably not gonna ever do a two week sailing cruise like I did. <laughs> I was actually sailing though, so like had to yeah hoist, properly th- hoist sails and shit. Okay, probably <laughs> not. I, we actually got caught in a really intense storm. It was terrifying. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, 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 it just freaks me out. I see videos of like people doing those sailing trips in storms, and then the whole thing just flips completely. Like Okay, so this ship was pretty big. Oh, it was pretty big? Um, so in 2009, I did a, um, an exchange to Finland to the, through the Lions Club. It was the first time I went to Finland. And the Lions exchanges usually have like a camp component, so you do a camp in that country for like two, day, two weeks or whatever. And uh, mine was sailing. So we sailed on a ship that races in the tall ships race every year. So I don't know if you know anything about the tall ships race. I do. I love it. So the ship was T.S. Helena. And Helena has raced in the tall ships race a few times. Uh, Actually, it raced in the tall ships race the year that I sailed on her after it dropped us off. She headed to St. Petersburg to start the race. But we sailed from the western Finnish city of Turku all the way through the... Finnish archipelago towards Sweden and then back up the Finnish coast up the east side to Kotka and when we were leaving Helsinki that one night it was like the most time we were really going to spend away from the shore and like in like super open water and uh it just there was a really gross like storm that night and like our ship was fine it was just really wavy and like everyone got really seasick I didn't because I was on deck the whole time because my little shift had like uh, deck watch that day or that through that and then I just decided to stay on deck until we had reached like kind of calmer water because being below deck means you're going to get hella seasick and I get motion sick no matter what so <laughs> I was like I'm going to stay out here in the freezing cold <laughs> um, but <laughs> then uh, we found out the next morning so we actually had like a TV on this thing and we had like we got like a satellite in the, in the morning so we could get news and we found out that a Polish ship that was sailing that same in that same storm had one of her masts blown over in the wind and the crew had to be rescued by helicopter. Like the ship was fine, just the mast had blown over and they couldn't do anything, obviously. So that's my experience on the ocean. <laughs> but it was actually pretty cool. As someone who is from the prairies, which is landlocked, it was very different being on a boat for two <laughs> weeks, <laughs> but <laughs> that's pretty cool. And then later when the tall ships race was in Turku, for like that couple like a couple weeks later when it was in Turku I actually went to see the tall ships race with my host family because my host dad was like their big was a big sailor and so we actually went to the tall ships race and got to see the boat that I had just sailed on so that was kind of cool and you can actually sail on the ships that go on the tall ship tall ships race you can pay to go 
it's like 500 euros, but you can pay and sail on the ship for the whole race. It sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Like I will say that I'm just petrified of the ocean. Nope, I totally get it. Cause it's terrifying. Like it, it scares me too. Yeah. Yeah. But you actually did it. Yeah. That's the problem. I, I couldn't do it. That's, that's I don't the know thing. if I would do it again though. And I don't know if I would go on a cruise. Um, well, I mean, my main thing for not going on, I think I'd be fine. I also don't want to go on a cruise because I don't want norovirus. Okay, there's that. But, I mean, <laughs> I could probably handle a cruise because at least... It's a massive It's ship. a massive fucking thing. And you can basically do most of it indoors, I guess. I mean, yeah, you're going to go outside. Well, and you also don't really, like, feel the movement of the ship that no. much because it's so big. Yeah, unless there's a storm. But yeah. I don't even, even then, I mean... So, but like my main reason for not doing cruises is because these cruise lines can be fucking sketchy as shit. So Carnival in particular, like has a really bad reputation. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think they can sue us for saying that because um, nope. it's like, Pretty, uh, it's public knowledge like, at this point. Your honor, if I can direct you to exhibits A through Z. It's pretty common knowledge yeah, at this point. That they so yeah, they're pretty, pretty sketchy. I think they are also the, I think they own the, the line, the line or the company that ran the Costa Concordia. I might sure. be wrong. I think they did. I think Because that's the one that went down in the bay in Italy, right? Yeah, it flipped on its side. Yeah. yeah. I think, I'm pretty sure that was Carnival. And then Carnival also had the ship that was in the Gulf of Mexico that, like, had no power. Yeah, I think it was in around, around the same They were. They were, time. like, within, like, a year of each other. They it, were really close. I think it was closer than that, actually. Yeah, I just don't remember the exact, like, length of time, but it was at least, it was within a year, probably less time, I want to say, within six months, but... Probably. I, I, th- I think it was actually closer than that, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, so, Either way, neither things were good. No, but, uh, and I definitely think we should do an episode on Costa Concordia totally. because just of how, because, like, not a lot of people know the full inning like inner details of it. But I remember it being a huge story when it happened. I remember when it happened. I don't really know a lot about it. I just remember it happening. I've learned more about it now, like through uh, YouTube channels. Check out Bright Sun Films because they do an excellent talk about it and about a bunch of other things. Bright Sun Films, please. Um, Don't give us... We're not asking for money, but help us. Uh, Anyway. Uh, (laughs) I like how a lot of our podcasts are just really quiet pleas for help. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We're sending an SOS. Please don't ignore us like the California ignored... Don't ignore the white flares. (laughs) Please don't ignore us like California ignored Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Again, not saying we're Titanic here. Just... No, 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 (laughs) no. This is not a catastrophic sinking. We're pretty buoyant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're still afloat. We'll, we'll go with that. Panastoria is still afloat. <laughs> proud, to, proud to report. We, the SS sh- Panastoria will keep shall, chugging along. Yeah, we shall cross the Atlantic. We shall go transatlantic and beyond. Are we? Is Panastoria a steamship? Would it be a steamship? At this point, probably. Maybe a, a rowboat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't <laughs> One of the kind of collapsible Titanic lifeboats. It's one of the lifeboats. And we're just... And we're not at capacity. Luckily, there's no leaks. (laughs) I mean, after Korean War, there was a few leaks, but... One or two. Yeah, it's like, too long. Oh, dear. And then you... Mike stopped working. Oh, shit. (laughs) But we've we've gotten through a lot of hiccups. Happy to report. We're maybe maybe a motorboat at this like a, I think we've upgraded from lifeboat to to, to motorboat to something that's like seaworthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Maybe not transatlantic worthy, but we're getting there. But Slowly, like, we're like, getting there. We can there. be on the water safely now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, let's end this before this analogy gets out yeah, of control. Yeah, basically. So do you have any good news for... <laughs> do I have good news? Um. Oh, yeah. Uh, Airdrie has a Pride Festival this year. I literally just got tagged in it in the last hour. Sweet. Um, they're having a Pride Parade. Also, good news, the Raptors are through to the second round of the playoffs. Go Raptors. Holla. That's that's my good news. Yeah. It's pretty pretty, also, pretty minor, guess, but... Also, I guess the good news is that, as the Beaverton pointed out, uh, we no longer have to root for the Bruins. Also true. <laughs> yeah, also true. Um, I wasn't really, as a Canucks fan, that just kills me and I can't. I wasn't actively cheering against the Leafs, but I could not cheer for them, and I also really couldn't cheer for the Bruins. Yeah, glad that series is over so I don't have to pretend to care anymore. Lin- Lindsay already knows this, that I don't give a shit about hockey. So. My playoff bracket is fucked, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tampa. Well, for NHL. Thanks, Calgary. Yeah, t- Tampa lost the freaking Blue Jackets. Yeah, so basically, thanks, Tampa. Thanks, Calgary. You fucked my bracket. <laughs> Dicks. Me, I didn't care. I was just watching the whole thing go down, and it was hilarious. For me, it was hilarious. But anyway, I don't have any good news this week. I completely forgot about it. And the one good news I don't know enough about. That, so I don't want to say it. It's something to do with SpaceX. Oh. Um, I guess they had a successful launch the other day after the last one exploded or something. But I don't know I don't know enough about it. I just know that they live streamed it. And when I was watching a little bit, I don't watch the whole live streams because I'm not that big of a fan. Uh, but like uh, when I was watching it, like something happened that looked kind of insignificant. But people were going crazy. And I was like, oh, okay. Like... I guess that was that's a good thing. Like yeah. I've seen rockets do that before, but okay. Yeah. I, I guess I guess this is good news. Um, but I do have a fact about a ship and about the Queen Mary. Is I didn't know this. It is it it, it either is or was owned by Disney at hmm. one point, uh, or no, it was owned by the the guy who owns and built the Disneyland Hotel. Okay. So it was oh, technically owned by Disney in a way, in a hmm. weird way. But there were plans before California Adventure was opened. There was actually plans to build uh, the second theme park in Long Beach as a port called Port Disney. So oh. along the water. So there's going to be like a huge shopping center and like a mu- cool. an aquarium museum. Uh, it would have been cool. Like you learn about this, it would have been cool. And then there was going to be a theme park based around. Were they like, going to build like a replica of Queen Mary? No, the Queen Mary was going to be there. Oh, sick. Because it was already, it, that Long Beach I is where it's been. Yeah. But there was going to be part of, like, it was still going to be a hotel. Yeah. But that was going to be the hotel for the... Long Beach or Long Island? Long Beach. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, it does sound cool and everything like that, but the citizens of Long Beach were not happy about it. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Because of the back... You notice in a lot of places, like... uh, they, they like talk about building a new Disney theme park and there's usually some sort of backlash from the people living there. Hint, hint, go watch the video from Defunct Land about Disneyland Paris because it is actually hilarious. And it's Defunct pretty, Land yeah. is awesome. I'm just giving shout outs left and right here. But yeah. anyway. I mean, again, if you want to listen and learn more about the Black Ball line, because I completely botched that part of this episode, um, check out Stuff You Miss in History Class. <laughs> it's a really good podcast that I just discovered that I'm really enjoying. And Behind the Bastards is also pretty funny. Oh yeah, those. I, I also started listening to Slow Burn, which is I think is a, so is Vox. Yeah, it's Vox. Yeah. No, Slate. Oh, Slate. Okay, yeah, it's. it's I don't Vox know. or Slate. I can't remember which okay. one now. I haven't brought myself to listen to season two yet. 
still like working myself up to that one. I'm still not sure that I'm ready to listen to the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. <laughs> I'll get I'll, I'll get there. Though. I'll get there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so they they were going to build this whole thing. But yeah, there's such backlash from Long Beach and also the financial failure of Disneyland Paris. Also helped decide Probably that prevented. maybe we shouldn't build this here because it's going to be a legit uh, built a construction and economic nightmare. Yeah. It probably would have brought a lot of money to Long Beach in the long run, uh-huh. um, but uh, it just never came to pass. And then there was an idea to build what's called what was called Westcott, which eventually became California Adventure. Yeah, just thought that was interesting. So I guess like if if I don't if either of us don't have like. Or we forget to get good news or whatnot. We'll just say a fact, we'll like just last give you season. Fun facts. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's more my expertise anyway. But whatever. So yeah, that was the Titanic, the sinking ship, the ship of dreams, the drowned giant. Sorry, we didn't talk a lot about when they discovered it. But to be honest, there's so many documentaries and whatnot about that whole process. You can go check it out. Yeah, I mean, there's like, yeah, like James Cameron actually did do a couple of really good Nat Geo docs on his like quest to basically find the Titanic and stuff like that. They're on YouTube, actually. Go check them out. I'm, because sure, actually- I'm sure Nat Geo actually has them posted to somewhere. They're really good. There's a lot of really fascinating stuff about the Titanic. It was just like, we can't cover everything and don't necessarily want to. I don't, no. I mean, I'm interested in the, you know, the search for Titanic, but really more on a personal level and don't really necessarily feel like I don't want to talk about it because it's like. Ship shipwrecks and like searching for things on shipwrecks is a whole has a whole interesting history and a whole like yeah it's a whole thing. <laughs> I mean, and I could, also don't know enough about it to really. Yeah, I mean, we could theoretically do a whole episode just on that, exactly. but I don't think we will because that seems like more of a science and just general interest. It's not really straight up our alley. No, I don't think. But I'm sure there are like other places of talked about it and yeah. you could easily find them if i find any that sound interesting and look good yeah. i'll post them on the page um, but other reason to follow us on social media is that we're approaching very quickly the one year anniversary of pan historia and Woo. we're gonna be doing some some things on our social media to celebrate so definitely give us a follow uh we're on facebook and instagram as pan historia podcast i'm also on twitter as Helly in the first follow me if you want to i don't t- i don't post a lot <laughs> i mostly just Pin tweets of things from Pan Story. Yeah. I'm mostly I'm also on those like Instagram and uh, Twitter, but those are my private accounts. Sorry, <laughs> I just get sick and tired of like weird. I'm like, oh, this is a hot girl that I don't know who it is and yeah. wants me to follow them for some reason. So yeah, I don't have a problem on Twitter because I don't use it very much. Instagram certainly got very irritating with that for a while. Anyways. I never use Twitter. So anyway, that's basically it. That's <laughs> Social media platform rat aside. Pretty rat much, aside. yeah. So May, I'm treating May 7th as the official first year anniversary just because I think that's when the Facebook, Facebook page. page went up. And since we don't actually know the day that we decided, like we Not decided really. to do this. I mean, our, yeah, our first episode came out in June, but we started doing this before then. So we like, did. And uh, so we're going to say... We're going to arbitrarily call it May 7th. <laughs> <laughs> so... Stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll be keeping you posted. Thank you to those who came to trivia on Friday because, I mean, we're recording this before trivia happened. Oh, but, yeah, right. But thank you so much for coming. Thank we you hope... in the future to people who come to the future event. But yeah, basically. But by the time this comes out. Yeah, but we hope you enjoyed. We hope you are listening to this episode now, if you're new, especially. But anyway, that's enough pandering, I believe. Uh, 
anything anything to add? Watch out for more blog posts because we've got a couple really great ones coming out in May. And I'll see you bitches at the Kentucky Derby. That's right. Lindsay's going to the Kentucky Derby on May 1st. Yep. She'll be there and for... Ten like, days. Uh, ten days, okay. And then we're going to be recording again after that. We're going to be doing the History of the UN. And then it's going to come out the, like soon after. And then... I'm leaving for Prince Edward Island on May 15th, but I'm only going for four days. So I'll Expect be... a lot of Anne of Green Gables posts. Oh, fuck yeah. So many. Hopefully. Hopefully we have time, but I'm not sure. But yeah, I'll be in Prince Edward Island for four days with family and then coming back and then recording the next episode that week. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be quite the month for us, I think, but... Onwards and upwards. Exactly. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, This is Jonah. And Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Have a good day.